Hello Absurdistanis and welcome to Absurdistan, the transatlantic political podcast with news and opinion from the absurd political reality which is our home. My name is Adam. And my name is John. This week we're looking at recent developments in the Spanish government and the US withdrawal from the UN Human Rights Council. All that and your weekly look ahead coming up, but first John, how are you? I'm doing well, it's good to have you back. It's nice to be back. It is after, was it two weeks? Two weeks, yeah. The first week we weren't able to put an episode out. Last week was, was good. I enjoyed talking with Chris, but I have missed you. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll actually get to chat with Chris myself because I'm always the one that seems to go on leave from the podcast and needs a substitute. I'm sure you'll get a chance to this summer. Also this week, I just wanted to plug this in here. It's not worthy of a full story, but it's hilarious. Did you see this, that Trump called for the establishment of a sixth branch of the United States Army as a space force? Only briefly. I, I've got no idea what that actually means. The <laughs> thing that I have in my head is Thunderbirds. So basically, he's not actually allowed to do this. Any new branch of the government has to be established by Congress. So he doesn't have the power to do it. But he directed the heads of, I think, the Department of Defense to look into the possibility of establishing a sixth a sixth branch. It was pretty vague what he said. It was just to be set up to protect American interests in space, so to preserve American dominance in space. So I'm thinking like Starship Troopers kind of stuff. <laughs> Thunderbirds are go. <laughs> I got to say, though, I'm a big fan of this because it means that finally we might actually get some real spending towards space exploration. <laughs> yeah, nothing says friendly space exploration like military funding. Well, since I've been gone for a couple of weeks, I actually want to take you back to the beginning of June. Something happened that has never happened under the current constitution here in Spain. Rajoy, Mariano Rajoy, the prime minister since 2011, was fired by parliament. Now, this was a classic case of a no-confidence motion, but he was replaced immediately by socialist leader Pedro Sanchez, who's now been prime minister for about two weeks. Uh, this has been quite a remarkable case because it started with a corruption case against Rajoy's party, the Partido Popular. Spain's high court recently convicted 29 Partido Popular members, including former senior officials, and sentenced them to a combined 351 years in prison. The Partido Popular was using graft schemes. Effectively, they were kickbacks from awarding public contracts to businesses, uh, which, you know, obviously had ins with the government, or at least with the party. Wow. Yeah, it's a, really a classic case of, uh, well, what would you say? Corruption. Crony capitalism. Exactly. They were fined 245,000 euros as an organization, and of course these guys were sent to prison. Now, unfortunately, here in Spain, corruption is a major public concern. And since the Partido Popular were found guilty, effectively, of these corruption tactics, they have nosedived in the polls. So, in steps Pedro Sanchez. Now, Pedro Sanchez has already been compared to Justin Trudeau. He's young, he's good-looking, and he tends to be more left of centre. He's the leader of the Socialist Party, uh, PSOE. It was initially his motion which led to him becoming the replacement PM. The 2016 Spanish elections created an unusual parliament. There's 350 seats in the parliament and 176 are needed for a majority. The Partido Popular had been governing with only 134 seats, so they weren't close to majority. They were supported by a party of 32, the Ciudadanos, and four other kind of random party people as well from kind of regionalist conservative parties. 
So they were governing effectively in a minority, and the only reason that they could do that was because the opposition, PSOE, or the Socialist Party, uh, allowed them to govern. In the opposition were Podemos, PSOE, and, of course, the nationalist parties from Catalonia and the Basque Country. When Pedro Sánchez put forward the motion, the motion contained in it not only the firing of Mariano Rajoy, but also the replacement of himself, Pedro Sánchez, as the Prime Minister. It fell on the opposition parties to unite behind Sanchez, which is a big ask because there are parties in that coalition or potential coalition that uh, don't do well with socialists. There's a number of centrist parties, there's nationalist parties, there's particularly nationalist right-leaning parties that would have to come to back a socialist prime minister. But it seems as if he was able to convince most of them as being the, at least the lesser of two evils, and all of them, all of these minor parties began backing the uh, socialist candidate. In the end, 180 members voted to back the socialist candidate. So Pedro Sanchez immediately became prime minister. So that's now a coalition of the socialist party, which is only 84 seats, supported by Podemos, which is 67 seats, the Catalan separatists, which have 17 seats, the Valencian nationalists, which have four, and a small party of Basque separatists, which only had five. There were another three seats in there that were also kind of small nationalist parties. So with 180 seats, the new government now has a very unstable partnership. Not entirely sure what to call it. It's a very slim majority. Well, it's actually not as slim as what the former government had before because now there is at least 180 members backing the government where previous to that there was just 176 or 177. Hmm. So uh, technically there's a larger majority. I think largely the problem is there's two. It's one, it's a confidence and supply agreement. So it's a, it's not a coalition. Coalition governments would be a program to govern between multiple parties. Confidence and supply is effectively just an issue-to-issue basis, mm. which means that at any point, any of the parties could say, nah, I don't really like your your program here, I don't like your policy, I'm not going to back you, and then suddenly nothing gets done. So it's basically exactly what happened in Britain after Theresa May's snap election. Yeah, so think of it like that. So currently the Conservatives in the UK are backed by the DUP. Uh, the DUP right. only have 10 seats. The, the difference is that out of 180 seats, the governing party only has 84 of those seats. So he's really, really dependent on his coalition to help him. Uh, on everything. Because it's not a coalition, the government, all the cabinet, all the ministers are only made up of this one party. If it was a coalition, you would see different parties filling different roles in the cabinet. That's not mm. the case in this case. So now you've got this weird, weird scenario in which a party with 84 seats is governing the country by itself. It's unusual. It's, it's very, very rare to see. Because this is a confidence and supply arrangement, do you see these smaller nationalist Catalan parties having larger influence generally ab- across the government, even though they have three or four seats, because they'll be able to threaten to pull back their votes and not give their support to the government? Yes. In a sense, it's an odd balancing act because, on one hand, if they bring down this government, you know, you go to elections and suddenly you've got the center right rising again. Because in the polling, it's actually the center right. Ciudadanos party that are winning in the polls and they are just as bad as the previous Partido Popular so the the nationalists wouldn't want to throw away an agreement that they've made with the socialists and we'll get to this in a second uh, uh, an agreement effectively in which the Spanish government is now willing to talk to the Catalan nationalists Mm. a case that wasn't true under the Rajoy government 
I guess what you've got is this weird kind of fine line balancing act in which both sides, the Catalan nationalists and Pedro Sanchez and the socialists, effectively needing each other. And so I, I don't think the nationalists would overplay their hand. At the same time, they will get a lot of respect from the Spanish government now. Well, it's hard to believe that they'd be able to get less respect from the Spanish government than they did from the prior government that was beating them down in the streets when they tried to vote for independence. Yeah, that was Rajoy's government, and uh, I think they're quite happy and were very willing to back Sanchez. So Rajoy was known as Mr. Wait and See. It seemed to be his main, you could hardly call it an action plan, because it wasn't much of an action plan. He was very well known for just waiting out problems, and eventually they would disintegrate. That didn't actually happen with the Catalan problem, and so there's been a lot of criticism that he's taken for the way that he's responded to you know, the Catalan crisis, not only the fact that he sent in armed policemen to beat civilians as they tried to vote, but also in the aftermath as well, not being able to come to any resolution at all. So you're in the heart of Catalonia in Barcelona, and you actually saw these suppression tactics playing out on that election day. What's been the response to this in in Catalan? Are people optimistic? Are they fearful? What's going on? I think generally people are more optimistic now. Uh, Again, because of the the dynamic in which now the government needs effectively the support of the Catalan parties to govern, there's been certain nods and winks and agreements to kind of start opening the gates of discussion. Uh, The first major step that the Spanish government took following Sanchez's appointment, let's say, he wasn't elected as an appointment, was that the Spanish government immediately lifted Article 155. Which is? That was the... Article the Constitution, which allows the Spanish government to step into the autonomous communities and take executive control. Oh, wow. So that, that's a big deal. That is how the Rohai government responded after uh, Catalonia tried to declare independence, which, to be honest, I'm not blaming them for. But after a December election here to effectively replace the Catalan parliament, the Spanish government was still wavering in its uh, willingness to lift Article 155. Sanchez or upon the appointment of Sanchez, that Article 155 was lifted, and on Saturday, just a couple of days after the appointment of Sanchez, a new Catalan government was sworn in as well. What's the leanings of this new Catalan government? Are they seeking independence? It's exactly the same as before. This is a weird situation in Catalonia at the moment, is that, and it was kind of summed up in that December election, is that 48% voted for Catalan nationalist parties, pro-independence parties, but the pro-independence parties got over 50% of the seats in the parliament. So now you've got a government that is entirely pro-independence, but on the backs of a voting population that was only about 48% pro-independence. So it's it's an odd place for it to be in. Of course, it still wants to push towards independence, but uh, yeah, it's it's an odd place. What what do you do? Because you obviously can't go back because you still have at least half the country backing independence. Right. But you can't push forward until that hits at least 50% plus one, which hasn't happened yet. And on a few occasions, that hasn't happened. So the government generally wants independence, but they don't have a clear enough mandate yet from the people to move forward with that. Correct. And the Spanish government knows this. So you know, in terms of you know, game theory or, or just good intergovernmental practice, you know, the, the Spanish government can use that to its advantage to say to the Catalans, like, well, no, actually, you don't have the mandate here. We will put our own foot forward first. So do you think that more than anything, the lifting of Article 155 is posturing or even just maybe a, a show of goodwill towards Catalan to maybe satisfy them enough to convince the government not to seek independence right yet? 
I think it was a, a gesture of goodwill towards the Catalans, ultimately. I, I think it had to happen. I think the onus was on Rajoy to make it happen, and he just wouldn't, and I think that was just making relations far worse. Now what can happen is that the Sanchez government, which is willing to discuss, willing to chat with the Catalans, and the Catalan government, which knows it's in a position that it can't move forward with independence, can at least come to a middle ground somewhere. They must be able to come to middle ground somewhere. And so that, that is the hope. That's the optimism there is that knowing, that knowing that independence is now probably off the table for a while and knowing that the Spanish government is willing to at least talk, uh, both sides seem to be open to coming to an agreement which might finally conclude the Catalan crisis. So one of the other multinational areas that I'm more familiar with is the, the United Kingdom. And there we have Scotland which is a devolved government, but the Scottish Parliament is still ultimately subject to the British Parliament. To what extent are the governments devolved in Spain? How much authority does the Catalan Parliament have? So I, essentially what I'm asking is, how influential will this government be? Or are they still going to be under the heel of the Spanish Parliament? So the lifting of Article 155 gives them their original competencies back that were taken away from them. Uh, in comparison to the Scottish Parliament, they actually do have more competencies uh, so they are a more powerful government. Uh, they, they're a more powerful parliament. Uh, they're also more powerful in the way that they can influence uh, Spanish state politics as well, but that's kind of getting into the institutional particularities of the Spanish state in a way that Scotland can't. So Article 155 just kind of puts everything, sets everything back to normal. So the, the Catalans also have, they're not technically diplomatic missions abroad, but they, they effectively function as such. Uh, and so those will open again. There's There's... certain things that the Catalans will be able to do again, but not any more than what they were able to do previously. What this sounds like to me is maybe a middle ground solution between independence and the heavy handedness of Rajoy's government to maybe put an end to or allay the Catalan crisis. Do you think that's kind of what this is? Well, so a middle ground would be devolve more powers to Catalonia, which Rajoy flat out refused to do. In fact, so much, so flat out refused to do that he just said, well, the court said we can't do it, therefore we're not going to even consider it. And Sanchez has already indicated that he'd actually be willing to consider devolving more powers down to the Catalan parliament and Catalan government. So there are options there. But the the problem is that in the polls, the centre-right still looks to be in the majority. It still looks that if there was a vote that happened this week, for instance, that the centre-right would take back power and probably pursue a a relatively similar anti-Catalan platform. Effectively, Pedro Sanchez has a very short amount of time to actually get anything done. But Sanchez is already kind of making waves in, one, his cabinet. He's appointed 11 women to his cabinet and only six men. So it's a female majority cabinet. And I believe the only one in the world. I, I think that's the case. Someone correct me if that's not true. But his cabinet is also composed in different ways that actually seems quite progressive, even just beyond the appointment of 11 women. He's also appointed two Catalans, Josep Borrell as the foreign affairs minister, who happens to be anti-independence and quite controversial in Catalonia. Nonetheless, he is a Catalan. And he's also appointed Marichel Batet as the minister of public administration. Uh, she's quite an important minister in the sense of dealing with the Catalan crisis because she's her office will oversee effectively the, the Catalan government, parliament and everything that's going on in Catalonia. Hmm. And John, I know that you would like this. An actual scientist, an astronaut, in fact, has been appointed to the Ministry of Science. That is such a refreshing thing to see. I'm used to appointments in the United States, at least 
in the recent history being almost the exact opposite person that you'd want in that role. So for instance, we have Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, who is a climate science denier. And also as an attorney general, he sued the EPA 14 times <laughs> to reduce regulation. You you have Ben Carson as head of housing. You have Betsy DeVos as the head of education. So it's like you're appointing people to these positions that don't actually even believe in the mission of the department that they're supposed to head. So when I see other countries and I see like like in this instance where an astronaut who's very clearly well-versed in science is appointed to a position that he's actually capable of and actually has the background and education to do well, it gives me a little bit of hope <laughs> that maybe we can have something like this in the United States at some point. As Dr. Pedro de Quay, he was the first Spanish person to ever visit space. He's an engineer, but he's also very well versed on things like climate change. In fact, that's going to be what he's heading up in his department is not only, well, future spatial exploration for the Europeans, but also climate change and other fun sciencey things that I'm not very well versed in myself. But eh, there you go. To wrap up with Pedro Sanchez, things have already been changing even just the last couple of weeks. And it just goes to show you how quickly the same parliament can produce different types of government. Mm. Uh, so not only has Article 155 ended in Catalonia, leading ways to possible bridging of gaps that hasn't been available in the last few years, but Spain has also accepted a refugee boat that was turned away by Malta and Italy's new populist anti-immigrant government. This wouldn't have happened under a Rajoy government, and now there's 629 refugees that will be arriving in Valencia. In fact, they arrive, arrived in Valencia this past Sunday. And what is a show of, I don't want to say moral fiber, I don't want to put the the kind of the, the moral onus on Spain because it, it, it will disappoint in some ways. But effectively at a time when the European Union has been struggling with migration again, where it's been coming out in politics, particularly in Italy and even in Germany this week, Spain has stepped up and said, we will take the migrants, we'll take them in. And it's, uh, it's ended up looking quite good for the, the new prime minister. He also has plans to move Franco's grave from its current place in a large mausoleum that was built by Franco. Spain has not yet, as I've come to realize this in the last 10 months, it has not reconciled with its past. Uh, the fact that there are still many people who feel nostalgic for the Franco era continues to surprise me. So the Spanish government looks as if it's going to try and de-escalate uh, and move towards reconciliation, which will be good in the long run. But like I said... Pedro Sanchez does not have a lot of time. He's already said that he looks to having an election in 2019 instead of 2020-21, as was originally scheduled. This only gives him about a year to actually work through a left-leaning progressive program for government before likely handing it back to the centre-right. So he has a year to impress, he has a year to put right the wrongs of the last seven years. And so for all the boyish charm and good looks of Justin Trudeau, it might all be for naught, unless he can win over the people with a realistic and optimistic left-wing socialist program for government. But eh, the cynic in me says that might be more difficult than it looks. On Tuesday this week, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing from the U.N. Human Rights Council. The council was set up in 2006 to replace the U.N. Commission on Human Rights, the commission was strongly criticized in the past for allowing countries with poor human rights records to be members, but the same problems persist with the Human Rights Council. Countries like China, Cuba, Ethiopia, Pakistan, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela, 
they're all countries that belong to the Human Rights Council. And not only that, they were elected to the council. In 2006, when the council was formed, then-President George W. Bush refused to join, basically for this reason. They thought that the council was going to be too soft on actual human rights abusers, in some cases allowing actual human rights abusers to be members. They doubted the efficacy of this council and how well it would be able to regulate human rights abroad. In 2009, shortly after his inauguration, President Obama decided to join the council, but he entered membership with a more aggressive agenda. And some say that this actually helped the council actually do its job. They did actually pass some resolutions against legitimate abusers of human rights like Syria. In 2017, Nikki Haley sought reforms for the Human Rights Council. One of the biggest flaws that's pointed out with the Human Rights Council, and I don't know if you know this, Adam, but there are geographical quotas for the states that can be admitted. So mm -hmm. Africa and Asia each get 13 seats. Latin America and the Caribbean get eight. Western Europe and other countries like the U.S., Canada, and Australia, and New Zealand, they get seven seats. And Eastern Europe gets six seats. So when these elections happen, they have to fill up all those seats with nations within that geographical area. So it's not necessarily a meritocracy. You could be elected to the council even though you have shady things going on with your human rights record. And we see that in countries like Cuba, Pakistan, the Philippines, China, all being elected to this council. And a lot of this happens because of the fact that there are just not enough countries that have decent human rights records in these geographical regions. And you can end up with the council being comprised of countries that have horrible human rights records, writing resolutions or signing on to resolutions that are reprimanding other countries for human rights abuses. It's, it's seen as very hypocritical. So like I said, in 2017, Nikki Haley came out with some reforms that she wanted to happen uh, to the Human Rights Council in order for it to be more fair and effective. She did say that the United States didn't want to withdraw from the council, but they may have to if these reforms weren't to take effect. One of these reforms that she sought was for elections and to end secret balloting. She wanted to have the ballots on the table and to know which countries voted for which countries. But the biggest point of contention for the United States in the past has been what they call political bias against nations like Israel, specifically Israel. There is a specific agenda item on the agenda for the Human Rights Council that is there every year. It's perennial called Agenda Item 7. And it specifically calls out the Israeli-Palestine conflict. And that's the only agenda item to do so. That's Israel is the only nation that is named outright by the council for their human rights abuses against the Palestinians. 78 resolutions have been passed by the Human Rights Council condemning Israel, and this is more resolutions than for the rest of the world combined. So there is an argument to be made that there is some serious anti-Israel bias because there are plenty of other human rights abuses that go on in the world, certainly not so many more happening in Israel that you would be censured more than the rest of the world combined. And Nikki Haley also sought an end to the support for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, or the BDS movement against Israel, which encouraged private businesses to engage in a boycott against Israel so that they would stop their abuses against Palestinian citizens. The Human Rights Council did not go along with these changes. They didn't make these reforms. And as of Tuesday, Haley announced that she would be withdrawing the United States from the Human Rights Council, calling the council a cesspool of political bias. Which I think is a shame. I think it's a shame. It's a bit of a storm in a teacup type of problem, though, because I don't think the Human Rights Council actually does that much 
But I, I do think there's something about the optics of it when, you know, the one of the foremost powers, one of the biggest proponents, ostensibly, of human rights pulls out the UN Human Rights Council. I don't know if it says more about the US or says more about the UN. What do you think? Do, do you agree with the US's decision? Ultimately, I kind of do, but I disagree with their logic. Oh, right. Okay. I agree with you about the optics of the situation. It doesn't look great, especially since this last week, members of the UN were calling out the United States for human rights abuses against <laughs> children at the border mm-hmm. and that whole situation that's been going on. But at the same time, I view the Human Rights Council almost as a joke. <laughs> I, I really do. Uh, I think that they go after low-hanging fruit in countries that they know that they can bully into submission, like Sri Lanka, countries that don't have you know, major allies or countries that don't have a lot of support on the council. But they haven't done any resolutions on countries like China, Cuba, Russia, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Zimbabwe, these countries where massive human rights abuses are taking place. Even today, countries that are pursuing horrible, horrendous policies are members of the council, and they're not being called out. Like the Philippines, where you have Duterte, who is essentially carrying out a legal genocide of drug dealers. Hmm. Saudi Arabia, and we all know how I feel about Saudi Arabia, Venezuela with Maduro cracking down and starving his own people, essentially. Cuba, for goodness sakes, who has never had a good human rights record. These states, they have political influence within the council. They have allies in big places. And so they're not called out. I don't have a huge issue with the United States leaving the council because I think that, number one, the United States supports abusers of human rights all around the world. We're actively aiding and abetting the siege of Yemen by Saudi Arabia, which is which is horrendous. They're bombing hospitals built by doctors without borders that are trying to treat a cholera epidemic that's been caused by the war. It just seems like kabuki theater, mm. almost. Oh, but, I mean, the UN is kabuki theater. Like, that's what the UN is. Like. But I think that other sections, other portions of the UN are more effective than the Human Rights Council. Yeah, but there's major aspects of the UN that just don't work. The General Assembly itself and the Security Council don't work. That is all kabuki theater. Right, so in other words, right, here's, here's why I, I disagree with the states leaving is that, one, I think there's a major misconception about what the Human Rights Council actually is. Like there's 47 standing members at any one time. That's a quarter of the world's nations actually on the council. So of course you're going to get, like there aren't enough countries in the world that don't commit human rights, rights abuses to kind of fill that panel. So shrink the panel. Well, that's, that's a possible reform, let's say. But the United States, even if it agreed and wanted to stay on the Human Rights Council, could only do so for a maximum of six years before it then would have to leave anyway for three years. So unlike the Security Council, there aren't permanent members. So you're always right. going to have a rotation between these. So like I saw some daft tweet with someone saying that Canada wasn't on the Human Rights Council. Yeah, of course not, because it's not its turn. It will go back on the Human Rights Council, probably, unless it follows the United States. Point being is that the ease at which countries can get onto the Human Rights Council isn't necessarily because they're kind of ganging up to vote other countries on. It's because there's so many blooming spots to fill that eventually everyone's going to take a turn on the Human Rights Council. And second, you know, for the time that the United States actually was, as you said, on the Human Rights Council, there was some legitimate good done. And so I would hate for the United States just to kind of give up an opportunity to actually have some positive good, especially given that its main concern, Israel, is a particularly political issue that isn't going to go away. So 
I think my point being here is the, the Human Rights Council hasn't changed what's going on in Israel. At the same time, it won't affect anything, I think, in any major sense in any other part of the world uh, in which major human rights abru- abuses are occurring. But the point of the panel is just to get that discussion going. And that's the whole point of the UN. It's not for the UN to be successful. It's to provide a platform for that discussion to happen. And the fact that that happens at all with members like China, Cuba, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, that is at least a positive step. And so then to step away from it for a political issue, I don't know if the the balance, the the loss is worth the the gain. I've made it clear on the podcast before that I'm not the biggest fan of Israel. (laughs) And... I obviously think that they should be called out for their abuses, and I'm fine with the resolutions that have been made against them by the Human Rights Council. I'm fine with it. Well, that, that was going to be my other point, is that actually you should be agreeing with the idea of Israel being called out anyway, because you know mm-hmm. if there's yeah. anybody that can say to Israel, look, you're doing a really, really provocatively evil thing, you know, it's the UN. And I agree with you, but at the same time, the strongest member, I guess you could probably say, of the Human Rights Council of the United States almost blindly supports Israel, no matter what. I, I don't blame it. I don't blame it as, uh, especially in that region of the world. But any, anyway, continue. Right, but what I'm saying is that it, if the United States government's interest is to protect Israel at all costs, right? Or maybe not at all costs, but it's a priority on the international stage for the United States to back Israel. Why would they be a member of a group that clearly targets Israel? Well, because it's one issue. Uh, there are other human rights abuses that are happening in the world, and you mentioned uh, a couple of them. The fact that you know they have put out statements on Syria, the fact that they went for Sri Lanka. Like you, you say Sri Lanka's. Would you say it was easy pickings or, or low hanging fruit? It's like Sri Lanka had to be called out for what it did to its Tamil population. Like, so it doesn't matter whether it's easy hanging fruit or low hanging fruit. It's it was worth an international statement saying that what the Sinhalese did to the Tamils is worthy of repudiation is worthy of a, a slap on the wrist. Um, right. So, so, so it plays a positive role. And what effectively the United States has done is say that, well, because we think you guys pick on one of our allies too much, we're going to ignore the hundreds of other problems that exist in terms of human rights abuses in the world. Well, I don't think that, that that's necessarily fair. I think it's saying that the Human Rights Council pick and, picks and chooses the human rights abuses that it chooses to censure. So Sri Lanka, like I said, is, and I didn't mean low-hanging fruit as in that shouldn't have been called out. Absolutely, it should have. But what I'm saying is that Sri Lanka doesn't have powerful allies or a privileged position, let's say at the UN, where it could leverage its soft power against other nations because Mm. they got called out. Whereas China, Cuba, Russia, they're either major world players or they have major allies on the world stage. And because of that soft power and that political influence, they're not called out. So it creates a second class of, well, if you're powerful enough, then we're just going to ignore what you do. Like Saudi Arabia, obviously, is one of the most powerful nations in the world, and they just ignore what they do. The United States is one of the most powerful nations in the world, but they're never going to censure the United States for human rights abuses, even though we might do them. But that's going to be true in international relations anyway. Like whether it's the UN, the Human Rights Council, the European Union, you know, whatever it is, like whenever you're going to have... That, that's just realistic. It's realism in, in the world stage, ultimately, is that it's, mm. it's just biggest army diplomacy is always going to win. The, what these 
little councils do, what the UN does, what these organizations do is they at least provide the platform. And when you pull away from the platform, it the platform itself loses its value, thereby taking away any of the small gains that are you know, that are actually made over time. Right, but it's a facade. Yeah. Of I course, guess is what I'm the whole UN it, is a facade. It, the whole UN, the, the entire thing, the entire structure is a facade. But here is a counterpoint. Why would they call out Israel then if it has such powerful allies on the world stage? So why, if there, and I agree with you, it much of this boils down to realism, which I have said before in this podcast, I really am not a fan of. If it was truly about realism, then why would you provoke the largest nation and probably the most influential nation on the planet by censoring Israel more than you do anybody else? What's the difference there between Cuba? I mean, if you censor Cuba, you're probably going to piss off Russia and China, but you're pissing off the United States by censoring Israel, so why not make it more equitable? I think the difference is essentially that Israel is committing acts that can be almost globally identified as human rights abuses, whereas it's it's tougher to it's tougher to get a coalition to agree that, you know, as you say, Cuba is committing human rights abuses, especially when we don't have as easy a look into you know, what's happening in Cuba. And uh, to be honest, I've got no idea what's happening in Cuba, whereas I've got a really good idea what's going on in Israel. And I think that's done part of the problem as well. Yeah, well, Israel is well publicized. I think a lot of it, do, too, comes down to the fact that there's maybe a higher expectation on Israel because they are the only democracy in the Middle East. Right, exactly. Maybe. Uh, and also, I think, because they are the the side with power as well. I think there's something to the dynamic there as well. Regardless of that, though, like I said, I agree with I might agree with the move, but I don't agree with the logic. Sure, I'm not I'm not at all miffed by the fact that the Human Rights Council calls out Israel. I think Israel should be called out early and often, and constantly. But I also think that that same treatment should be given to any other nation that acts and behaves in the same way. Any other nation that has those sorts of human rights abuses that are sanctioned by the government. Hmm. So Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Russia. China, Cuba, Ethiopia, all these other countries that are, well, not Russia, but all these other countries that are members of the Human Rights Council, not just targets of censure and and uh, condemnation, members, voting members who are able to vote on these condemnations that we send over to Israel. That's just an embarrassment. How, <laughs> how could any country that's committing human rights abuses look at that seriously? And, and I understand that it doesn't matter. So if you murder somebody and that makes me angry, so I murder you, I'm not justified in doing that just because you did it. That's like this classic whataboutism that we have in politics now where somebody on the Republican side does something horrible and then they'll point to something equally horrible done by somebody on the Democratic side and say, well, see, they did it. Thereby justifying That doesn't it, yeah. absolve you at all. Mm. So... But you have the opportunity for that and the opportunity for that to be a salient point made to other nations where it's like, well, okay, fine, I'm refusing to supply water to Palestinians, but you are starving your own people, Maduro. Who are you to vote and censure me when you have, you know, like Jordan Peterson would say, clean your room before you can come and and talk to me and, (laughs) and be angry at me about what I'm doing. And so maybe the council brings small victories, but at the same time, it creates an environment where nations that are being censured can just let it roll off their back and say, whatever, you guys have Saudi Arabia on the Human Rights Council. What, who are you 
to talk down to me. I agree with Nikki Haley in her reforms. I think that we should be reforming this council. And if maybe the United States can use its power to help reform the council to make it more effective, maybe their withdrawal will shake it up enough so that they do seek ways to reform and make it more fair and equitable in the way that it hands out these condemnations. But I think that if the United States stays in and just gives its tacit approval to whatever's going on, then it's never going to change. It's never going to get better. Why not shrink it? Why not get rid of the geographical quotas? And I, I understand that's a hard sell. But then, yeah, but then if you don't have the geographical quota, suddenly you have a Western-dominated council and suddenly it, it loses its validity, it loses its you know, global reach, effectively. Okay, then maybe you can reform the way that elections are done. Increase the pool of, of nations and make it more of a meritocratic system. Meritocratic. But then who decides what the... Like, so then does, you know, Trump's removing children from their families at the Mexican border, like, does that disqualify the the Americans from sitting on the reformed Human Rights Council? Right, so yeah, who probably. gets to decide what the criteria is? But then what country hasn't done something that would disqualify from the human rights? I hesitate to say countries that have done things, and it's more about countries that are continuing to act in that way. Like, that's my point. Like, what, what country is not now in some way either committing or is allied to a country that is committing what could be defined as human rights abuses. You know, even just last month, the UK was found to be deporting people that it said that it would guarantee permanent residence to. Uh, this is the Windrush scandal. So, you know, Carib uh, Caribbean permanent residents were being deported because they didn't have the papers because they weren't given papers 40 years ago when they moved to the UK. Mm. So is that, one, is that a human rights abuse? Like, how do you categorize that? And two, would that disqualify the United Kingdom from sitting on a human rights council? So you could get into so many nitpicking yeah. details and differences. Like Sweden sells massive amounts of military material to the Middle East. So does that disqualify it from uh, the Human Rights Council, even though it takes in a bunch of migrants? Right, so, you know, how do you, how do you define it? Like, in that case, what is the possible use of the Human Rights Council? It's, it's a facade that's worth participating in mm. because it sets a... Uh, again, it's all about platform. It's just the fact that the discussion happens provides a positive good. The fact that it's there and it, even even if a body that didn't have any power sat under the title United Nations Human Rights Council existed, that in itself would do enough good to warrant, it warrant its existence. The fact that countries just get together and talk about it. I, I think the expectation that the UN, or more specifically the Human Rights Council, will actually do anything, I think is well above what is actually capable of. I, I don't think we should expect results from the United Nations or from the UN Human Rights Council. When something happens, that's a plus. But the fact that it exists, that, that is good enough. Yeah, I don't know. I, th I think one of the inherent problems or limitations of something like the Human Rights Council is that uh, countries don't give up any of their own sovereignty to the UN in any way, shape, or form. So it's not like the EU, for instance, where mm, you're governed by a certain set of laws and you're expected to obey them. The way that the UN is structured, it doesn't really pull any national sovereignty away from anybody. And it, it honestly does not have any power mm -hmm. to speak of. Yeah. This is one of those instances where realism in international politics just gets under my skin. And I hate <laughs> seeing these hypocritical facade kabuki theater things masquerading as a, a force for good mm. when really it's useless i think you just need to adjust your expectations 
Uh, and and say that like, the United Nations was not provided to pr- to create peace in the world or create justice in the world. It was provided just to create a platform for discussion. And maybe miracle upon miracles happen that maybe peace and justice actually come out of it. But what's the use of just talking about things if nothing actually happened? Oh, but no, no, no. Intergovernment relations is all talking. It, like, there's hardly like ninety five percent of government interaction is just talk. But it's good. Like, it's a positive good. The fact that they just talk is a good thing. Yeah, again, I just, I don't like it. I, <laughs> I'm not bothered, really, by the fact that they've removed themselves from the Human Rights Council. I don't think it's going to have really that large of a net effect, other than maybe there'll be some reforms on the council, maybe. Uh, we weren't always in the council, and it operated just fine without us. And I expect this will probably be reversed by the next administration, whatever comes next. I don't agree with the logic that was used, obviously, because... I think Israel should be called out. I think that they should be calling out every human rights abuser with the same veracity, no matter what, no matter what their political leanings are. But because of that factor of realism, I agree with Nikki Haley that it is a cesspool of political bias. I hate the hypocrisy of it. And now for your weekly look ahead. Here's some of the stories that we think you should be paying attention to in the coming week. President Donald Trump has been ramping up his rallies ahead of the 2018 midterm elections. The president is holding rallies in Minnesota, Nevada, South Carolina, North Dakota, and Wisconsin, all in the span of a week. And he's looking to galvanize his very loyal base. After the national outrage this week over the administration's policy of separating families at the border, this tour comes at a pretty good time for the president. Trump was at his best during the 2016 presidential campaign where he was able to speak directly with his supporters. But there's a dimension here that may work against the president. His presence in these states may bring attention to the national importance of local elections and underscore the fact that the midterms are a referendum on Trump's presidency rather than the individual candidates involved in these elections. So we'll have to watch and see how that plays out and if this is ultimately a good political move for him. Back on this side of the Atlantic. This Sunday on June 24th is the snap Turkish presidential and parliamentary election. Incumbent President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announced the election a full year and a half before it was supposed to take place in November 2019, after promising previously not to do so. If you'll remember, in a 2017 constitutional referendum, Turkey voted narrowly to reform the office of the president, granting it wide-ranging powers, effectively allowing Erdogan to rule indefinitely as a dictator for most of the rest of his life. But, you know, specifically, legally. Importantly, though, the new provisions do not come into effect until after the next election, which is now on Sunday. So why the rush? Why call a snap election? Turkey's economy has begun struggling as the Turkish currency is experiencing double-digit inflation and a growing deficit. Erdogan, whose popularity is thought to hinge on Turkey's recent prosperity and economic growth, may be attempting to preempt an inevitable economic crash. Given the Turkish government's proven track record of election interference, stranglehold control of the media and intimidation tactics, I wouldn't be putting too much money on Erdogan's opposition. However, they seem to be showing some teeth, specifically in the form of Muharim Inse, a secularist firebrand from the Republican People's Party. The opposition want to force Erdogan into a runoff if Erdogan fails to give 50% of the vote on Sunday, which, according to polls, looks somewhat likely. The runoff would take place on July 8th, but being a political cynic, I won't be holding my breath. But if ever there was an opportunity to pull Turkey back from the brink of dictatorship, this is it. And for that, it's well worth a watch. Moving a bit north to Germany. Angela Merkel has called an emergency summit for this upcoming Sunday regarding the issue of migration in the EU. 
This comes ahead of a scheduled summit on June 28th and 29th. Merkel is facing increased pressure at home from her coalition party, the Christian Social Union, on the issue of controlling immigration and threatens the stability of the German government. The issue Merkel is trying to address is secondary movement in the EU. Right now, asylum seekers have been able to travel between nations located in the Schengen area, and Merkel is hoping to form a plan for sharing the burden among EU nations more easily. This is high stakes for Merkel, because if she's not able to talk down nations like Italy, who have a newly minted anti-immigration government, the strength of the German government and of Merkel's control of the EU could be in danger. We'll have to watch closely on Sunday to see if she's successful. And speaking of the the major summit coming up on the 28th and 29th, it itself is worth a look. This summit is a tri-monthly meeting between the heads of government of the 28 member states of the European Union. And this one's going to be a doozy. Not only was it meant to be the summit at which the withdrawal agreement with the UK was to be tabled, the summit is now also going to include migration, as John mentioned, but also the Eurozone and a new trade war with the United States. Hooray! Uh, and of course, the continued authoritarian tendencies of the Polish and Hungarian governments. On migration, as John said, with hardliners like Hungary vetoing any mandatory migrant settling and frontline countries like Italy and Greece struggling to meet the needs of asylum seekers on their shores, block-wide agreement on the issue seems distant at best. On the Eurozone, Macron's dream of a currency-wide central management system has been scuppered by Germany and the Netherlands, but reforms are still needed. They still need to happen. And the summit is the best place to hammer out a deal, although... This looks unlikely. Donald Trump, of course, decided to economically punish his allies and start a trade war with the EU. This alongside an unprecedented incursion into German domestic politics via Twitter. And there is a reason we call this podcast Absurdistan. He tweeted that Germans were turning against their government over migration, which is debatable, but nonetheless was quite fiery rhetoric for the head of a foreign government to be infiltrating domestic politics in Germany. Nonetheless, this could firm up the resolve of the EU to intensify integration. With all of this on the table, the poor UK and its little Brexit issue will likely fade into the background and perhaps much to the relief of the British government who still can't decide what they want from the withdrawal agreement. Brexit was supposed to be the headliner for this summer and now, thanks to everything that's developed over the past couple of months, it looks as if it will be pushed to the back burner, perhaps indicating how important Britain's exit from the EU really is to the rest of the bloc. And that's all we have time for today. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Absurdistanis. We're also on YouTube as Absurdistan with an exclamation point. Be sure to check out our website, Absurdistanis.com. That's Absurdistanis.com. We post all of our episodes to this website and we also host forums for discussion so that you, our audience, can engage with our content. Thank you for listening and as always, stay informed. Stay informed.